Today's Bible reading comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 4, verse 2, through to chapter 5, verse 7. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy, all who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Then the Lord will create over all, the, all of Mount Zion and over those who are assembled there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. Over everything, the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and hiding place from the storm and rain. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only, only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. When he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Well, uh, good morning again, everyone. It's great to have you here today as we continue on with Sermon 2 of our nine-week series in the first part of Isaiah. If you are with us last week, I put it out up front that the take-home value of studying Isaiah today, I think, is threefold. Firstly, it will grow your trust in God that he keeps every one of his promises, which I think is really key for us today because if we don't really trust God from our heart, it's easy to slip into the habits of being a half-hearted people of faith, kind of hedging our bets between the promises and rewards of this world and the promises and rewards God calls us to hold on to that come from him. Secondly, Isaiah helps embolden and equip us to share and defend the uniqueness of Jesus, that every person on the planet needs him to reconcile us to God through his death on the cross, as we've just sung together. Thirdly, Isaiah will really shape the way that we live today as a church, in our households, as individuals, as people who follow Jesus, awaiting the time where we see by sight God drawing all things together under Christ. And with great joy, we get to experience being with him 
for all time. I was encouraged that so many took the daily reading notes last week. Many of our community groups have followed up in their studies with a bit of a different format, seeking to drill right down on the application of Isaiah for us today. Last week's sermon's up online for you to listen to, as I think first sermons in the series are important to catch up on if you miss them. It kind of sets the tone for the series. But the 60-second recap, for the benefit of us all, was that the Jewish people were under pressure from the rising military force of Assyria that was expanding under the rule of Tiglath-Pileser III, or TP3, as we've been calling him in the office this week. (laughs) So God sends Isaiah to speak particularly to the southern kingdom of God's people, Judah, with a surprising message, which we saw was God through his prophet taking the Jewish people to task over over turning their backs on God in their hearts. The issue was that there were too many outward shows of religion, too much meaningless religion, and not enough changed hearts seeking to live lives pleasing to God. And it was actually quite the opposite, really. There was uh, the nation heading off into great moral and ethical decline. And God reminded his people that without his protection, they were but a small nation in a rough neighbourhood, vulnerable and exposed like a hut in a cucumber field. And you have to listen to last week's sermon to realise why I smile every time that I say that. And as Isaiah kicks off, we saw just how incredibly wearied God was by all of this, with people worshipping him externally, but not from the heart. And we ask the question, seeking to learn from others' mistakes... What are the ways that we can slip into habits where we weary God just by going through the motions rather than refreshing ourselves and God by doing the deeper spiritual work of heart change and living a life that flows from it? For those who have done the daily readings this week, and uh, do start if you've not found the opportunity yet, there's copies at the doors, and I think there's something brilliant about reading along, knowing that a good portion of your church family is reading and praying and thinking about the same passages. But if you've been doing it, you would have read the first five chapters of Isaiah and reflected on them with the questions. Chapters 1 to 5 are kind of the introduction to the whole book. All the themes of Isaiah are laid out there for us. And chapter 1 that we looked at last week, I'd call that the introduction to the introduction. And today's passage is the conclusion to the introduction in chapters 4 and 5. And for those who have done the readings, I think you would not have failed to notice this at times and quite regular jarring slip back and forth between passages that speak of the wonderful future hope that God promises his people, like You know, if you read on from last week, the first five uh, verses of chapter 2 are just full of these great promises. They're very refreshing. And then it returns to God expressing in no uncertain terms his wrath and the judgment that is coming on account of the pervasive sins of the people in the present that has flowed out of them turning their backs on him. We get one of those big changes in today's reading too, in chapter 4 and as we push into chapter 5, Isaiah has been calling for repentance from God's people knowing full well that it's not going to happen on a grand scale. 
but rather the people of God will be cut down to almost a stump in the ground, to use Isaiah's metaphor, with only a remnant left. But from it will shoot the branch of the Lord that we read in verse 2. That will be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors of Israel, those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem. They'll be called holy, all who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. Speaking of a day where God will have washed away the impurities, the filth, through the coming judgment and fire that presses down on them. And in an image well known to the Jews and uh, those familiar with Exodus, be with his people again in a cloud of smoke by day and a glowing fire, a, glowing, a flaming fire by night. And it's actually, um, for all its imagery, a picture of peace and protection where God is once more a shelter and a refuge for this holy remnant. This kind of whole image is a very typical, sort of delivered by the prophet Isaiah way, that God speaks to his people with wonderful future promises, then makes the shift back to the present situation of God needing to deal with the heart problem of the people, their sins, as they continue on in their meaningless religious acts that they assume clear them with God so that they can kind of walk out of whatever gathering they've been in and think, say and do whatever they please. Whereas God reminds them of the reality that he is not fooled. He sees straight through them to their many sins that seriously grieve God and arouse his anger. Let's look at chapter 5 to the end. That's starting with Isaiah's poem of lament that our Prince of Prophets Isaiah sings to the God he loves. As Isaiah likens God's work with the nation to a vineyard owner who plants his vines, and as you know, the first hearers would have understood, you plant the vines and you probably got to wait a few years for your first crop. So in the meantime, you plant the vines, you tend to them, but you then get on with building the infrastructure to support wine production a hedge of protection around it, a wine press, a watchtower too, probably procuring pots and wineskins for all the wine, all the time tending, watching, waiting in expectation for good fruit and the excellent wine that flows from it. An illustration readily understood in Isaiah's day and not lost on us as South Australians. <laughs> Yet much to his disappointment, the vineyard only yields bad fruit and after such exhaustive efforts on a fruit on a sort of a fertile hillside this whole scenario was bewildering then in verses three and four of chapter five Isaiah switches to speaking on God's behalf in the first person calling the people to judge between him and his vineyard as God says what more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it when I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? God has lovingly tended to this vineyard, laboured for years, seeking to build something of great productivity and fruitfulness. Yet we read in this poem of lament, God's heart breaking at what it actually produces, bad fruit. It's not like he could have done anything more for it, and that was plain to see. 
But what is to be done with this vineyard that only yields bad fruit? Well, God's verdict comes, and we're told of his plans in verses 5 to 6. Now, I will tell you what I'm going to do with my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. And for any in Isaiah's audience who are a little slow on connecting the dots, maybe hadn't had their morning coffee, Isaiah's poem of lament concludes with a very kind of let-me-be-clear statement, verse 7. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. So I want you just to stop for a moment and try and feel the weight of what Isaiah has just said to the people of God. What it would have felt like to hear. The decline to the point where they now were came over generations. You can read about it in 1 and 2 Kings to kind of get the historical background. But just imagine kids, imagine our kids who are just in here with us, imagine them growing up, seeing mum and dad in the local community doing the external acts of religion, going to the feasts, meeting together, the celebrations, making the required sacrifices, speaking of God and of being God's people. Yet at the same time, looking out at this community of God's people, and seeing it marked by injustice, by the wealthy oppressing the poor, where the vulnerable are abused, where drunkenness and depravity reign. And not just the kids of the day, but whole generations would have just thought that their experience of life is normal for the people of God. Isaiah would have cut through such assumptions like a scalding hot knife through butter, saying this is not what the people of God are called to live like. God is not pleased. In fact, he's coming in judgment. And the first act of that judgment is to withdraw his protection over the nation, hedge and wall removed. This land and society, even in their slow slide into decay, had still enjoyed wealth and relative peace for some time now by God's gracious hand. And that gracious provision is about to be withdrawn. Sort of the light kind of pruning and cultivation that God had done on society was about to cease and a much harsher pruning back to a stump in the ground was coming. I don't think that we can grasp how hard, even if we try, how hard Isaiah's poem of lament would have landed as he first preached it to the people. Imagine being the person called to deliver that message. I can't fathom it. What would the people have thought? Surely God wouldn't do that to us. 
For people who'd never experienced anything different, they would have thought, how is this fair? How is this part of God's plans? What have we done to deserve this? Well, Isaiah doesn't leave them wondering. He unloads as many woes are declared, and we get a brief overview of them in verses 8 to 25, which is my bad for not having them printed in your leaflets this week. They printed exactly what I asked them to, but I just asked them for the wrong thing. So listen along carefully, or follow along on your phones. Isaiah 5 uh, from verse 8. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live in the land. There's lots of ways. We'll just look at this first one to get a vibe for it. Because it's a great illustration of what's been happening, how far the people have fallen. This land was given to the Jewish people as a great blessing and a gift, a fulfilment of a promise for all to enjoy. But as time has gone on, the rich have kind of increasingly sort of snapped it up. Instead of five little farms supporting five households, those with greater wealth actually turned on and dispossessed those who were more vulnerable, making them even more poor. Then with that increasing power and wealth, dispossessing the next until what was five households was just one owning five households with more poor and vulnerable as a result. So God declares, surely the great houses will become desolate. The fine mansions left without occupants. A ten-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine. A homer of seed will yield only an ephah of grain. Instead of each person having enough and enjoying the food and wine of the land and a celebration of God's goodness and kindness to them, verses 11 and 12 paint a picture of the wealthy living a life of excess gorging themselves at banquets with enough wine to drink from sun up till late in the night, verse 12, with no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. All this feasting and drinking all the while the poor suffer. Isaiah just kind of continues on. The arrogance of the people is called out. The perversion of the people called out. People calling evil good and good evil. Moral and ethical decline are linked together quite artistically by Isaiah. He's got a fair turn of phrase. Verses 22 and 23 are a good example of his eloquence. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks, who acquit the guilty for a bribe but deny justice to the innocent. And among these many woes, God reveals his plan, verses 13 to 15 of chapter 5. He says, Therefore my people will go into exile for lack of understanding. Those with high rank will die of hunger, and the common people will be parched with thirst. Therefore, death expands its jaws, opening wide its mouth. Into it will descend their nobles and masses with all their brawlers and revelers. So people will be brought low and everyone humbled, the eyes of the arrogant humbled. Exile. Surely not 
the people would have thought. We're God's people. This land is ours, it was a gift. Yet God reveals, verse 26, that he's not just kind of letting this happen. He will personally whistle to those from the end of the earth, lifting up a banner for distant nations to come against his own people who will come speedily with chariots, sharp arrows, even reliable footwear, verse 27 says, roaring like lions, bringing darkness and distress. But why this plan from God? Well, we're told in verse 16, but the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice and the holy God will be proved holy by his righteous acts. If you're taking notes, I think verse 16 of chapter 5 is the verse that helps us kind of unpack what's going on here and it's a big piece in understanding Isaiah and why a loving God is also a God of judgment. It's because of his character. He, he's holy, he cannot bear sin in his presence. God is just. People often say, well, he's God, he can do whatever he likes. God, he can't. God cannot be unjust. If you're here today checking out who Jesus is, it's so great you're here. We get that, you know, you probably weren't expecting Isaiah 5. You might have, if you come back a second time after last week, it's really great to see you as well. You probably weren't getting, um, expecting this when you walked in. This is a confronting image of God rather than the sort of fairy tale Morgan Freeman kind of picture in a white suit that we get in the movies. Perhaps approach it from this angle. Ask yourself the question, would you be interested in having a relationship with an all-powerful God who simply was indifferent to justice? A God who overlooked the oppression of the poor, the abuse of the weak and the vulnerable. Would you want to worship a God who was satisfied and acquitted people of guilt if they just performed a few meaningless rituals and can then walk away and do, think and say whatever they like? I wouldn't and I hope you wouldn't either. But imagine even worse, what if God punished some people harshly, but if you were some part of a privileged group, the kind of in crowd, he'd simply overlook the same actions and sweep them under the carpet. If God was like that, it would be terrible news for our world. And if you get that, this is a big piece in understanding the storyline of Isaiah. God is displaying his holiness and justice by judging and pouring out his wrath against sin upon even those he's chosen to be his own. Showing the world he's prepared to reduce even his very own vineyard, the one he loves, the one he's lavished his love upon, to but a stump in the ground. But at the same time, God promises from that stump comes hope, comes a purified people, the branch of the Lord that will be both beautiful and glorious. And as we said last week, how God does that 
It takes all of Isaiah to unfold. It takes the storyline of the Bible to its end. It takes the suffering servant that Isaiah prophesies about, whom God promises in advance will come, arriving some 700 years, more than 700 years later, to be the faithful one, to live in perfect obedience. It takes Jesus, who out of great love came to die for our sins, as Isaiah will prophesy over 700 years before he walked this earth. Chapter 53, starting verse 10 of Isaiah, and I've got this one up on the screen, Matt, if you want to uh, pop it up. This is what Isaiah later says, speaking prophetically of Jesus. He says, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand, Jesus' hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Speaking to us in advance of the resurrection. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. If you're checking out Jesus for the first time or church in Jesus for the first time in a while, let us help you get your head around how Jesus' death on the cross and rising to new life is great news for you and great news for our world. That Jesus would willingly, out of love, bear the iniquities of you and me so that we can have a real relationship with a holy and a just God. So he doesn't need to compromise his holiness nor his justice because of what happened on the cross. Now, you can explain it to a kid in 30 seconds and you can spend your whole life trying to appreciate the depth of what Christ has actually done for us. It's a great week to be with us because we just started... uh, Recent life series on Thursday night with a great group. We had a wonderful time together. It's not too late to join. Week one is up on our website. We uh, shot that during COVID. You can watch the video and join us for week two this week. Have a chat with me after or hit our website. Just click on the Jesus button for want of a better term and you'll see what it's like. Hear from people who've done it before. You can catch up on week one. And we'd love to have you join us. And for our regulars who might have followed up people who pulled up at the last minute or things like that, you can flick in the video and say, this is what it's like. Do you want to join me for week two? But for the rest of us who already follow Jesus, we've understood the passage now. We've understood more about Isaiah. And like we always must do, we need to ask the question, so what for us today? As we seek to apply Isaiah's words into our lives, I'll give you one similarity we have to Isaiah's first hearers, one difference and one big point of application that you can imply almost endlessly. The similarity first. We, as followers of Jesus, are people to whom God has made glorious future promises to. Not only is the New Testament full of them, But Isaiah prophetically revealed many things. Some took place in Isaiah's lifetime, some in the generations that followed. Many were fulfilled as Jesus came to earth fully man, fully God, heading to the cross. 
some, and we'll look at them in coming weeks, we won't see fulfilled until Jesus returns. And even just the ones piled up for us in Isaiah are glorious. We, like those in Isaiah's day, are people waiting, knowing that God, as we wait for him, cares deeply about how we live as we wait. God's holiness and his justice are unchanged along with God's need to deal with our sin at present. But here's the difference. We look back to the cross of Christ, not forward like Isaiah did. We see there that God's holiness and justice was displayed as the full weight of his wrath against sin is poured out on Christ on the cross. God's justice and his great love for humanity met there on that day. And understanding Isaiah helps us not to take the offer of grace and forgiveness that we have today and take it cheaply. Think about it for a moment. Jesus had never known what it was like up until the cross to not enjoy a perfect relationship between him and God the Father, never stained or tainted or blocked in any way by sin. Until the day he willingly took upon his shoulders the sins of the whole world as God poured out his wrath against sin on him. This is the most cosmic event in history. The ground shook. The sky went black and they were plunged into darkness. There's there's records outside of the Bible of people needing to kind of come out with, um, you know, lanterns and stuff because they just couldn't see a thing. In the middle of the day, in this darkness, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Such was the tear in the relationship between God the Father and God the Son as Jesus bore our sins on his shoulders and died upon the cross. But as Isaiah revealed in advance the plans of God many centuries before, Jesus saw the light of life again and was satisfied. Future hope present dealing with sin and the question is what does God require from us then today in light of this wonderful news well it's to be a people longing to produce good fruit in the vineyard of God again in our community groups this week as we seek to apply this we'll look at Jesus words in John 15 about Jesus being the true vine and us the branches, with our purpose being to bear good fruit, lest we be cut from the vine. It's John 15, 1 to 8 for our note takers. That's the goal of the Christian life, to bear good fruit together. And to pick just one of the many fruits God is looking for on Compassion Sunday, one is real generosity in heart for the world's poor. We need to acknowledge that much of our wealth, our lifestyle, our ability to have and do many things comes on the back of the world's poor doing jobs that we'd rather not do, in conditions that we'd recoil from, 
for wages that we would never accept. But please don't sponsor a child today. Please don't sponsor a child if you simply feel like it's something you need to do to kind of tick a box to make you feel you know, part of our church or feel better about living in one of the most beautiful, wealthy and peaceful parts of God's world. As we saw last week, God is not at all pleased by such meaningless acts. But please do sponsor a child today if you want to do it as an act of worship of a God who is a defender of the poor and the vulnerable. As but just one way in seeking to change your heart to be more like God's with a genuine concern for the world's poor. But stepping back and looking at the bigger picture, church is all about being a healthier vineyard together, seeking to produce more and more fruit for God's glory. And if you've always been a bit of a spectator at church, maybe you've been with us a few weeks, a few months, even years, a great next step to you for you would be to come along to our Belong series. It starts this afternoon and runs over four weeks. If you can't make this afternoon, don't worry, let us know you'd like to come and we will sort it out. Because it's all about how you can play your part in us pursuing together how we can be the most fruitful people for God we can be out of a great desire to bring glory to God. Because we want to be a healthy vineyard producing good fruit. Where our kids grow up thinking that it's normal and that it's a regular thing to see their friends come to know Jesus as Lord and Saviour. That they think it normal that churches grow, fill up and multiply gatherings and plant new churches. Where it's normal, like our kids think, that everyone serves on a team and uses their gifts to pursue fruitful together where it's normal that the budget graph looks as encouraging as it does in the leaflet today as we resource up with a desire to be increasingly fruitful, planting a new church. And most importantly, where it's normal that the Christian life is about doing the deeper spiritual work week in, week out, to repent of sin, to worship God from the heart. (laughs) Let me close this time together in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for your word to us in Isaiah. Uh, We thank you for this image of both wonderful future promises, uh, but also because of your holiness and justice needing to deal with present sin. We thank you that we can look back to the cross of Christ and see him dealing with our sin there. Please don't ever help us, or sorry, please help us never to underappreciate the extraordinary cross that Christ paid to free us from the stain of sin so that we as sinful people can have a relationship with you today that is free, that we can run to you like a loving father, that we can approach you a holy and a just God in prayer. Please help us as a church to grow in our fruitfulness together, seeking the growth of your kingdom, seeing uh, great fruit born for your glory and not for ours. And we ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.